left, right. Thank you for joining. If you're new to this, uh, please subscribe. It, it helps us big time. If you are not new to this, consider leaving a comment if you haven't commented before and liking this video. Uh, it helps us big time. And also throw in the comments some stuff that you want to hear about because we're always looking for new ideas. Today we're talking a little bit more about the cops. Um, obviously that's a hot point, so weigh in. Let me know what you think. This is Sip Talk. Grab a drink and enjoy. Cheers. 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 Sip Talk episode 31, uh, which is which is cool. We're in the 30s. Um, we're doing a little bit of uh, backtracking because I, I got myself in trouble last week. Um, I don't know if you caught any of the feedback. I'll have to share some of that with you. And yeah, throw it, throw it out there read into some of these comments. Uh, it's been a frustrating day too, just kind of dealing with stupidity. I wouldn't, I don't want to call it stupidity. I don't want to call anybody stupid. But it's just some, some slight issues here. And uh, you know, it's kind of in line with what I see going on with the police, like just kind of bad decisions being made, people not thinking things out before they act. Um, but I actually took, I took about a half hour before we came online just to decompress a little bit, take some notes about the police. Uh, I want to ask people who are watching about their last interaction with the police that you can remember, whether it was being pulled over, or maybe the police helped you fix a flat tire, or gave you directions, because police are here to protect and serve. Um, <clears throat> but I also, you know, I was, I was reading today a GQ article about the police and, uh, you know, one of the lines that's in the article is that the police work for the people. Ultimately, the taxpayer is their employee, 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 their city employees or state employees. But the way that works is that they, they, you know, they have to do what the population of that area wants. And there's a lot going on right now that, uh, that is drawing to light what's happening that people don't like. So I think we're going to see a, a big shift. And I like the fact that we're talking about it. I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a current topic. It may not affect me the same way it affects a lot of other people. But, um, but I think it's a good topic to be discussing. So real quick, I got a trusty Bud Light and a gigantic can. What do you got down there? I am drinking Milwaukee's Best Ice. Is it iced or is it... Uh, is it warm? Uh, it says ice on the front. Is it cool? I know. I, I'm, I'm dodging the question. <laughs> oh, man. But I don't know if you can see this. The cooler is Jim Beam. I'd rather be drinking Jim Beam. I don't have any Jim Beam. <laughs> well, I don't think that comes in a can. Um, yeah, man, I really needed a drink today. It was a, a wild day. We, uh, we had a lease returned to us. Uh, on Monday, and I looked, you know, we looked at the lease, we sent it back to the landlord, the landlord, now, and everything was signed, every page was initialed, every signature was notarized, which it didn't need to be, it just needed to be notarized. Yeah, that's overkill. On like page five or six, 
Uh, it is pouring here, by the way. So hopefully the internet stays good, but I can hear the rain just pounding against the window. Um, no, it's coming through clear. I don't hear anything. So we, we reviewed the lease. Everything looked good. It was oversigned at that. Sent out to the landlord, and the landlord realized that two pages were missing, which it was an oversight on our part. I didn't think that we sent literally everything in one file. So for the person to print it, remove two pages, and, and sign it and send it back to us is a bit silly how that happened. I can see how we overlooked it. I don't know what the, the client was thinking when they removed the pages. Haven't gotten to the bottom of that one, but they definitely. But the so was it your fault in terms of not sending the client all the papers? No, or was it the client for not? Correct. Yeah, we sent one file with all of the paperwork in it. Okay. And, and they, well, at least you don't have to apologize for something stupid on your end. No, but it does. It's not a good look for us as we reviewed it and didn't catch the missing. Either way. Okay. It's our bad. It's our bad to a degree. The, the client pulled something that made us look stupid. So the landlord said to me, you know, we need these papers. What's, what's the deal on it? So I said, you know what? We're going to overnight them. We'll, and this is Monday. So we'll have them Tuesday. I'll get them to your office. So the client brings in a FedEx, sends, them, sends us a, a tracking number. We look at the FedEx and it says dropped at the FedEx, at the Walgreens FedEx. And uh, we're waiting for them today. So three o'clock rolls around, which was estimated time. I'm like, hey, what's going on, guys? They're like, oh, it says it's supposed to be here by three. Should be here any minute. It's 3.30. I'm going, hey, guys, you know, we got to get this by 5 o'clock to somewhere that's about 40 minutes away. So that we need it in the next yeah. next 25 minutes. Can we call FedEx? Now, they kept telling me, yeah, it still says scheduled to arrive at 3 p.m. So I'm not digging into it. I'm like, okay, they're running late. I said, let me look at the tracking number. They sent me a screenshot. I'm like, oh, this must have been a screenshot from yesterday because it shows that it was dropped at the FedEx facility but none of the other dots along the line have been have been lit up with the new steps. So it oh, hasn't okay. made its where, way to the warehouse or the party. Yeah, you should be able to get, like, now you've got the tracking number. You can just plug it in yourself. I plugged in the tracking number, and I realized, thinking that this screenshot was from yesterday, that was actually from 3 o'clock today, not from 3 o'clock yesterday. And the fact that the dots arrived at FedEx facility, departed Chicago, in flight to New York, arrived in New York, on the truck out for delivery never happened okay so now, so, so now i'm like now we have an issue now i know it's not going to be here today no matter what like there's something going on so we track it down now, now bear in mind like, i i shouldn't be the person like communicating with the client communicating with fedex i should just i'm doing the landlord so they should be giving this information to me and i'm explaining to them that it makes us look incompetent if i'm like yeah it's going to be here today at three o'clock and it's four thirty. Well, you just call up the landlord and be like, the client said that they sh shipped it or whatever. Here's the tracking number. I can only do so much. And he's going to say, I have somebody here who's got a deposit ready to sign leases in our office now. You know, basically is the pushback I'm going to get. And given it's coronavirus, we have lots of vacancies. I'm not setting myself up for that because I know better. So I'm going to make sure that we have all our ducks in a row here. And I'm not going to now. I told them Monday it would be here tomorrow. Now it's tomorrow. I can't say it's going to be here tomorrow again and then not be certain on that. So I'm trying to get some certainty. Um, What's the tracking number say? Uh, dropped at Walgreens FedEx in Chicago. Arriving today at 3 p.m. And it's now 645, 640. And it's obviously not arriving 
at 3 p.m. So I kept asking, I kept grilling them. I'm like, guys, I need an answer. Like, call. Oh, and then they're, I'm with FedEx. FedEx can't locate the package. They don't know where it is. And all they know is that it's at Walgreens. I'm like, okay, so let's call Walgreens and find out what happened. And they're like, yeah, we received it, but uh, it left here. I'm like, well, it doesn't appear to have left there. They're like, well, a new person didn't scan it out. Like, so we know it wasn't scanned out, but that doesn't mean that it went out. Like, it could be sitting on the side of a desk leaning against the, you know, the side of a filing cabinet for all we know. Um, and that's where we are now. I suggested we just send another one, but that's not happening. Why can't you just have them, like, digitally sign something or just sign something and scan you the PDF of it, and then you print that off and give it to the landlord? Well, that, that won't work, but that's what I'm trying to have happen in the meantime. But it just, the, the feedback, the, what I, the answer I kept getting was, it's supposed to be here by three o'clock. And I said, but I'm telling you, it was supposed to be here by three o'clock. We need to solve you, this problem. Yeah, it's no longer three o'clock and it's not here. <laughs> I, I said to the agent, I go, all right, just follow my logic in this one. What if I told you I can make you a millionaire by 25 years old? And uh, he goes, okay, I'll buy it. I go, dude, you're 32. How, is, how are you buying this? He goes, well, I'm, I'm talking about the hypothetical. I'm saying, yes, the hypothetical is you're 32, and I'm promising I'll make you a millionaire by 25. That's the hypothetical. And it just it wasn't, it wasn't sitting in. And, uh, and I do everything I can to not lose my shit. But at the end of the day, then and then up until 20 minutes ago, they're telling me the client said she talked to FedEx and said it would be here tomorrow. Well, and that's not helpful. I'm like, all that FedEx knows is that it was scanned at Walgreens. Like, I, I know that that's not, you know, there's no guarantee. Yeah, but if there's nothing else populated on the tracking or whatever, then it was scanned at Walgreens and it could very well still be at Walgreens in Chicago. It, I, I mean, it could be in the fucking garbage. Who knows? You know, we, 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 we don't have record of it. So, um, but I mean, it was me. I told them, get a digital signature, give me a digital copy so I can send it over right away and at least show that we're doing something that. Because, yeah. like, at our firm, we've got a number of clients that don't necessarily live in Charleston. Maybe they lived in Charleston at one point, they move, and they still want to keep us for their services, but now they're in California or wherever. So when we finish up a return, we, we're we not going to ask a client to come a 1,000 miles to come physically sign their return. But in New so. York, it's so damn old school that – People, they want blue ink on paper with an indentation from pressing down the paper. Very few people take an electronic signature. Nobody takes copies. I still have to fax paperwork to landlords on the Upper West Side back in 1978. Like they're stuck in 1978. Yeah. I just don't get it because what we can do is we'll just send them PDFs of the forms that they need to sign. They'll sign them and then scan them back to us. And we'll just print them. And, and like, we don't even need to like print them off or attach them with the return. But that's, those signatures are good enough to satisfy our liability in terms of like having the client's authorization to file for them. So yeah. if we can get that, if that's good enough for the IRS then why isn't something similar good enough for some landlord in Queens? Because the IRS also works for the public, just like the police, and they have to respond to what the public wants to, to a, a decent degree. If you own many, many buildings in Manhattan, your family pr probably acquired them 100 years ago, and then you got them when the oldest member who was you know, on a deed to that property died. And that probably meant you were pretty old yourself. 
and you either still own it or you just got it from the next relative that died, which probably means you're also very old. So the, in, and here's my thinking is that the majority of the owners of property in Manhattan are old and very slow to change. And the fact that I'm faxing applications rather than emailing them or filling out an online application is you know, like, that's, that's just how it goes. That's just how it goes. Yeah, that's just. So I want to get back on this police thing real quick. Uh, what, was the, what was the feedback and comments that you got that, that yeah, gonna, you all been a tizzy? Let me, let me hit the comments that, that got me a bit in a tizzy here because it's just some, let me share a quick story. Somebody, somebody threw this one in here. Uh, once I ran out of gas and they helped me get gas. That's a good story. I don't know where that took place, um, but it was probably not in New York City. They probably just would have told you to jump in a cab, I feel like. Um, okay, so let's hit the YouTube here. Uh, well, I think one of the, one of the things um, that might have been missed in the last conversation was, like, I don't think either of us were trying to say that there haven't been times that the police have been helpful or that the police can't be helpful. No, I, I was saying the vast majority of interactions that people have with the police are negative and that the police should overall be a good thing, but there needs to be a lot of change in the police department. It's not good for police right now, and it's not good for people right now. So something needs to change. And I was super frustrated based on what happened to me, which was loosely, if not at all, related to race. Uh, Probably for you wasn't. That, that's kind of where I'm going. But I'll, I'll give you this, this comment real quick. So hi from Tanzania, Texas, South Africa. Uh, speeding ticket 88 and a 65. He says printer wasn't working. Let me offer the warning. That's not bad. Um, so, but the one comment I got, uh, and this is the, like my reaction to this one was really to bite my tongue at first and try to understand it. But uh, now you can have empathy in all capitals for what African-Americans deal with on a daily basis with police. Now, I, I reacted to that. Now, I'm pretty empathetic. Like, I really, I'm empathetic to a flaw, sometimes to inaction. But I do have a lot of empathy for what's happening to African-Americans. I'm not an African-American. So I'm sharing my story. I'm not saying I totally get it. I'm just saying I have empathy. I do think it's a problem. Yeah, I'm bringing and, light to And that. additionally, I don't think that you're saying that your experience is worse or better or anything than, than what others are. You're just saying, this is something that I experienced. And if I can experience it, other people must experience it as well. Some may be worse. Well, I think there's an underlying issue with police behavior and police power and things like that. Now, when you introduce race to it, it becomes compounded um, because the way that just people inherently react on a subconscious level to race, they may not even be aware of it. You know, you have a lot of people out here saying Black Lives Matter and that they're not racist, but they do racist shit inadvertently. And I think, I think that's where, I think that's where kind of the black and brown population looks at a bunch of white people saying they're not racist and they're like, yeah, but you are. And, and that's, you know, the, the communicate, the conversation needs to happen around that. Or, people, or, or, or even saying, 
yeah, you might not be racist, but you're still benefiting from a system that's racist. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, exactly. And then, but the other part was that African-Americans deal with this on a daily basis. And, and uh, I don't think they deal with what happened to me on a daily basis. I think they deal with lots of racist shit on a daily basis. Uh, again, removing my, myself saying that what happened to me was racial. Um, I was just, my, what I was saying was that as a police officer, there's a certain amount of discretion that you must use in doing your job. Somebody doing one mile over, one mile over the speed limit isn't the same as somebody plowing through restaurant barricades with outdoor seating. Um, or somebody who's doing 40 in a 25 where there's a bunch of restaurants seat, seating around because that could be the person that plows through it. Um, you know, me going the wrong way down one way street was wrong. It was ticketable. I wasn't arguing and it didn't need to erupt into this aggressive showdown of whose dick is bigger at, at the point where the fact that I can be handcuffed and you know whatever could have happened didn't happen but that's you know that's because i i wasn't even trying to argue i was trying to be agreeable yeah i know i was going the yeah. wrong way it's a homeless guy well and i think that that might be what what some black people would say is that that kind of interaction when they've done nothing or minimal things wrong and the way that they're treated by police is that even when they're trying to be as agreeable as possible and make the interaction as non-confrontational as they can, that the police ratchet up the tension and that they feel that they're victimized for their race. And I've got to have to say that they're right. Yeah, I think, I, uh, yeah, but the police ratcheting it, up, ratcheting it up. In the in the GQ article, it came out in 2015, they're talking about the police showing up to a birthday party and wrestling and pinning a girl, a young black girl to the ground who was like 12 years old yeah, it was wearing in Dallas. A, yeah, wearing a bathing suit, obviously, clearly unarmed. Mm-hmm. How how something like that happens, and I, I, you know, I just I think to if to look at it objectively, remove race from the equation, and just ask yourself how you could do that to anyone ever. And and the fact that you know the fact that that could even happen, you know, I think we need to rather than having a veil of, of racism over it, to say, look, there's a major issue with with who we're hiring or how we're training or how we're screening, and for it to be easier once you remove the racial aspect from it, for it to be easier to get a lot more people on board, yeah, than to say it's not my problem or you know maybe she was doing something. You just said a person was pinned to the ground, 12-year-old girl. Wearing a bathing suit. Wearing a bathing suit. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's bad to remove, the sake, to remove race from the equation for the sake of having a racial conversation. Well, but, I think that there's a key question to ask there, which is when, when you see an incident like that happen, a good question to ask would be, would be would we expect would are we more or less surprised that the victim of this interaction was black if if that if that 
12-year-old girl was white, do you think the police would have done the same thing that they did? And I think the answer is almost universally going to be no. Exactly. That it's because she was black that the police reacted that way. And then, the, yeah, the, the, the bigger question is what causes that? Actually, there's a couple questions. First is what causes that? Why would black, like a black 12-year-old girl be perceived as more of a threat than a white girl? like girl of they in the same get up or whatever to police officers and also like i don't know what the outcome was for the police officers involved in that incident in in 2015 but the other question would be let's just imagine that that girl was white versus the girl being black as it when as it as it was in reality what are the consequences for the officers do you think that the officers would have gotten much swifter punishment if they had done that to a white white girl well, they would have had a they would have had a larger base also speaking out probably against how terrible it was. Maybe, but I think maybe not now. Maybe not in two thousand twenty, but in two thousand fifteen, I think I think possible. Yeah, but I, I think you could make a pretty strong argument that discipline would have been much swifter against the officers if it was a white girl that was victimized instead of a black girl. And that's one of the key points that Black Lives Matter is trying to make is not only are we more likely to be victims of abuses of power but those abuses of power are much less likely to get consequences yeah yeah exactly uh, and then the, then the larger question is what would possess somebody to think that that's an appropriate response regardless of race and just say that's, why that's what, what, and how what has led to you and even just your situation last week of in what world does it seem appropriate to Make this the way that you go about interacting with people in the course of your job. But the fact that there's more smartphones now, and the fact that I, this has always been happening, you know, I don't think oh, yeah. it's at all a new thing. It's always been happening, but now it's being brought to light much more, and we need to reevaluate the system, and we need we need to reevaluate it like from the ground up. I feel like you know you have people who are the rule, ma the rule makers, and you have the people who are the rule enforcers, and then I'm not even getting judicial here, but I'm saying you, and then you have us, the regular, the regular people, and that's kind of how we work with the laws. It doesn't need to get to the judicial system for it to go wrong. Sure. And I think the the rule enforcers and the rule makers need to do a better job. Um, you know, also with what was formerly wrong, I can't imagine being in jail for doing something that is now legal. Like just how fucking backwards, how much my mind would fucking implode, especially if I had like another 10 years to, to go. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, um, I don't know. I think when it comes to rule enforcement, I think police training. Um, I don't know how you how you change the police like that. Well, part of it is the way that they're trained and the mission statement that's ingrained into their head. And I think to to I'm going to start with a different example. Um, and we'll talk about prosecutors and being a lawyer. And so one of the things that's kind of drilled into them is as a prosecutor, what's your, 
let's not talk about what your goal should be. Let's talk about what your goal in practice is and answer that question for me. What's your goal as a prosecutor? So as a, in reality, not what, not, not ideally, but in reality, what happens as a prosecutor? What's your goal? As a prosecuting attorney. Yes. Is to have justice served, right? Mm, That's more ideally. Exactly. Uh, I'm thinking, I'm talking realistically in practice. What is your goal as a prosecuting attorney? Think about all the motivations that are rolled into the job. Yeah, right. I mean, effectively, you need to convince the other party that, that your party is correct. Mm, we're going to make it even I'll, – I'll, I'll help you out here. All right, even, even more simple. Right. is As a prosecuting attorney, my job is to get convictions or guilty pleas on as many cases that come across my desk as possible. Exactly. Is, is get a guilty plea. And if I don't get a guilty plea, then it's win in court. Exactly. And it doesn't matter whether or not my case is right. My job is to get a guilty plea. Well, and that, that I think that should really spell out a lot of what happens when people go to jail. Yeah, it's just simply well, yeah. their defense. But uh, if you I, so if you look at the way that things are right now, that's the way that's the that's the that's the reward structure because most prosecutors are elected in in terms of a DA. So the person who runs the district attorney's office, they're elected. They'll hire assistant DAs that aren't elected. But if you're not elected, then your boss is elected. So your boss who is elected is going to have to try and kind of shape their behavior based on what they think will get the most votes. And what's an easier sell to the average voter? I had a high conviction rate. I put away this many people during the course of my term versus I worked on all these different ways to get people out of jail and avoid having to make convictions if possible. One's better, but it's a much harder sell. And so if your goal, it's a wild job to hold. Right. But again, we have to look at incentives here. And so your incentive is to put away as many people as possible because that's what allows you to keep your job. It's a lot harder to sell the alternative method of justice to the general voter. So if your job is to get as many convictions as possible, then all of the assistant DAs that work under you are going to share that goal because their numbers get rolled into your numbers. And so now the police and the prosecutors work hand in hand. Because if the prosecutor doesn't work with the police, then the police are going to stop sending them evidence. And also, when it comes time to trial or whatever, if the prosecutor constantly screws over the police by not prosecuting cases or anything like that, then the police are going to stop giving good testimony to the prosecutor. So the two have to work hand in hand. And so now the police's goals start to align in much the same way that a prosecutor's goals do. Mm -hmm. And so now what's the job of the police? It's again, ideally it's to protect and serve, but the police chief, the sheriff is elected in much the same way that a prosecutor is. And so their goals are just like the prosecutors of how are they going to get elected? What is their election pitch? Are they going to say we avoided this many arrests and we, we didn't write this many tickets because we thought that that was what was best for the public interest? No, the public electing these officials are going to see that they have crime under control and that they take a tough stance on name and issue. 
And so that filters down to the police because they're told to take a tough stance on things and take no shit. And that's why you see policing the way it is. So you need to, you need to have a fundamental change in the incentive structure for both prosecutors and police because right now their incentives aren't necessarily well let me ask good how yeah and but that's really complicated to dissect it's 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 somewhat complicated to understand and a lot of people don't understand that that's exactly how it works i don't think police are so much at fault as just the system in general well, right. The, the police operate within a system, but I, I, I'm fundamentally an, an economist when it comes to looking at human behavior. And like whenever people hear economics, they think money, but economics is, a, is like a decision and a behavior science that very often happens to line up with money. But one of the kind of core principles of economics is that people respond to incentives. Yeah, yeah. So whenever I look at something that I can't quite figure out, I look and I try and say, what are the incentives at play here? What is driving behavior towards one result or another? But, but and correct me if I'm wrong, but don't people respond to incentives better than disincentives? Incent I, I'm using incentive as a catch-all. It can be either, a, an incentive can be a punishment of, a, of losing your job or a fine or imprisonment, well, or it can be... I'm talking like incentives are, are, are negative or positive. It's just incentivize something. I'm talking about both sides. So you have the police officers who are incentivized to hit quotas and give out tickets, and then you have people who have to pay fines, which is a disincentive. Pay fines or jail oh. time. Okay. Uh, I understand or, your question. So yeah. the, that's just, a psychological I, I, principle, yeah, and I'm the general saying. rule is that positive reinforcement is more effective than negative Better. reinforcement or punishment. Exactly. So, Yes. Yeah, that, that's, that's that. Um, uh, one, one thing that, that I read today was just talking about what it's like being a cop. And because I want to I pivot a little bit. Um, but what it's like being a cop. And they were saying that it's 90% boredom and 10% terror. Same thing as like being a pilot. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Um, a new pilot, maybe. Uh, but uh, most of the time you're just cruising at 35,000 watching the crowds roll by and then all of a sudden something goes wrong and you're well, in a 35,000 foot high tube of steel hopefully hopefully that's less than 10% of the time which I, I, I believe it is um, oh, I'm sure but the whole idea of 90 something percent boredom and x percent absolute terror but put yourself in a like the, I would never want to be a police officer because I don't want to get fucking shot also, if you're just a, a traffic cop, one, you're either standing between traffic as it whizzes by you in, in, you know. Or you're just writing bullshit tickets and pissing people off all day. Or you're just being hated every time your pen hits the paper. Or yep. in New York City, you, you know, your, your electronic pen hits the little buttons. But, but writing tickets as a, as a cop, to me, sounds so monotonous and just... Literally, like being uh, a tow truck driver for the police has got to be like you're just going around ruining people's day you're, every you're, day you're ruining people's day and potentially weeks and that shit costs a lot of money i think yep. i think it's like a 180 dollar tow fee 
plus $90 holding fee. And then that's like per day. And then it's like 50 bucks a day or something. I think here it's 90 bucks every additional day. So if you, you know, if you get towed on a Thursday and don't need your, because you don't use your car every day a lot of time, don't need your car until next Wednesday and you go Wednesday afternoon to grab the car. And it's, it was towed last, you know, last week. Like you're looking at seven or 800 bucks, maybe you're looking at a huge amount of money. And then they auction the people that can't pay. They auction these cars off. Yeah. So I love the idea of being able to just be able to sell stolen goods legally. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's what you're doing. But and, yeah, it is. I mean, oh. well, like, I, I guess I look at policing in a similar way to soccer refereeing, which I've done for 20 or 21 years. Well, I would where, say policing, I would say policing to a degree has a lot of parallels with being a referee. And so if it's like, I, I've been doing it for 21 years now and I, I, I consider myself to be pretty decent and there's going to be times where we have to be dicks. But what I've found is, I mean, I've experimented with everything and I've had my successes and also some pretty big failures, but my biggest failures were the times when I went in with a negative attitude and was confrontational or condescending or whatever. The best games that I've worked are the ones where I build partnerships with the players, where even if I have to do something that people aren't going to like, then I want to make it so that way 21 out of the 22 people on the field get it. The only person that doesn't like it is the person that is being punished. But by constantly working and building partnerships, where if I'm doing a professional game or whatever, it starts before the game. But even like during the game, I am constantly talking with the players during run of play, even while the ball is in play, I might be talking to a player. Anytime the ball goes out, whoever is nearest to me, I'm just going to say something to them just but to be able to build that rapport. But that's being in partner with your community, which mm -hmm. a lot of police are not. By the way, I am not a police Well, and that's, that's the analogy that I'm looking to draw. Somebody is that, asked if you're a police officer. I'm not a police officer. <laughs> Clearly, if you've been tuned in. I'm yeah. Um, but the, and that's the analogy that I'm looking to draw is that if you if you show the community that you're working for them, not against them, then when you have to go in and do something, you're automatically going to be perceived in a different way. People are going to be much more willing to forgive mistakes, and they're also going to be much more trusting of your motives. So that way, like, and I'll have this in, in, in games that I do. If I make a mistake, if let's say we're 60 minutes into the game and things have been going great, and I just screw a call up. Yeah. As long as it's not like calling a penalty kick or giving a red card to the wrong player or something, something that fundamentally changes the game. As yeah. long as it's not that. And like, let's say I miss a foul or I call a foul against a player that I shouldn't have. And the player is upset in a minute or two later or whatever, I might go by them and I'll be like, look, man, I might've messed that one up. And if I've been doing well up until that point, they'll almost always say, it's cool, man. I get it. Like, just don't let it happen again. I'm like, I'm with you. I'm working here. I can only do so well. But, yeah, and, 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 then it, and then everybody moves on with their life and nobody's upset. So they, you, you, exactly. you buy capital with people. But the way, the way they're reacting isn't as um, – it's not quite as reactive. They, have to, they understand you. They're not just reacting to what happened. They're, they're, they're getting some of your perspective. There's a bit more empathy on it because you've now connected with them beforehand. Which well, is also, but even if they react in the moment, if I make a call that people really don't like, and even if they blow up or whatever, what I won't do is I won't engage confrontationally with that immediately. I will give them a, 
it, I will give them some like, and usually it's about 10 to 15 to seconds. Yeah. I'll give them 10 or 15 seconds. I'll walk away. I'll create distance. So that way they have time to think about what they're doing. And also it's, it gives them time to think about it. And if they, if they continue after a certain point, then I'll be a dick because you've had your chance and I didn't add anything to it. But most of the time I make a call, everyone blows up. And then 10 or 15 seconds later, everyone calms down. Then I'll go back in and say, all right, let's talk in a calm voice. But yeah. if you get right in my face or whatever, like I'm, and you're yelling at me or whatever, I'm just going to say in a very stern voice, you go away. And, I, and if they continue yelling, I'm saying, no, I'm not talking to you right now. Go away. Exactly. But that's, you know, that's why I think placing police officers in communities, having them in the same spots on a regular basis, and they're going to be that much more in tune with what's actually going on. And they're going to become part of that community because they're there on a regular basis, which I believe probably happens in New York. But, you know, I don't, I've been at my current place. This is the sixth year I've been there. Last place I was at for three or four years. No, like three years. Um, I didn't, I've never seen the same cops uh, ever. And I walk, I walk by the precinct every single day now because it's the end of the It's like the end of your block, right? Yeah, it's at the end of, which is crazy because this block is so, so bad. Um, <clears throat> but uh, uh, hang on, we just got, we got another comment here on, uh, I can't imagine being a victim of police brutality, but with the stress of having a job when you have a bad day, you may not come home. It seems heartbreaking. Yeah, that's the problem with being, like that's, that's the 10% terror, which, you know, when you get pulled over, when you haven't interacted, it's really easy for someone to say, especially to someone who's a minority, that just when you see a cop, you just got to act chill. Like, you know, if you watched what happened over the weekend where the guy gets shot in the back seven times. The, the one thing that always surprised me also with police shootings is how many shots get fired on unarmed people. Like when you're 20 feet away from somebody who has a knife and you fire once, like that seems reasonable. Like they didn't charge you, you shot them. Oh, and they don't have any weapons and you shoot so many. Wouldn't you like to shoot just once and see what happens? Um, well, no. I, I wouldn't want to have to shoot once. But, um, but also, you know, there's talk about giving police like rubber bullets and things like that. Which no, that's a bad idea too. I also agree. But even, although I do kind of like the idea of the first round, but then it, it kind of cancels out where I'm saying, why are you firing so many shots? No. But the first round being a rubber bullet and then- No, that's dumb too. Well, well, let, let, give me your opinion on that because I'm curious. So what... the whole thing is, if you have to pull out your weapon and fire it, it should legitimately be because there is no other solution. But how do, and, you, but how do you account for stupidity? Like that's because in the moment, how are you going to know how training? Sure. But how much, how, how hard can you push the life or death situation in a training, in a training simulation? You'd be surprised. You can do I, a I, lot I, with I, training. Are we, I don't think we're working hard enough on that right now. That's right. Sure. That's why I'm saying training. But if you have to pull your weapon out, then it should be then then who you're shooting should be dead like it, it's not i'm shooting someone to wound them to incapacitate them if that's the case then 
then you shouldn't have pulled out your weapon at all. It's either I'm shooting you because you're about to kill me or somebody else, or I shouldn't be shooting you. It's black. Like I'm very, very rarely will I set black and white rules, but that's one of them. Well, so yeah, that that's fair enough because, because when the gun comes out, it, it becomes life or death immediately. Um, I've only been in one situation where I've seen an officer pull his weapon where it seemed like it was legitimately needed. I wasn't a party to it. I was a witness to it, but I wasn't a party to it. Where was this? This was uh, shortly after you moved. I was driving down 61. You know where 61 hits the Glen McConnell and you have to turn left? It's like pretty close to where our apartment used to be. Yeah, yeah. So, and then you turn left onto like the four lane section of 61. So I'm driving to get some, some lunch on like a Sunday or whatever. And at the time I was injured. So I wasn't even driving fast. I was driving either the speed limit or inside the speed limit. This tote, uh, this pickup truck comes flying around me and like, like turning hard enough that it was actually like pulling up gravel from the road and spraying my car. Yeah. You know, and I was like, what the hell was that? So then I'm just like, I want that person in front of me. I don't want them behind me. And so we, 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 every, he hits the stoplight. We all stop. He's like three cars in front of me. And then we, everybody turns left and we make it to the intersection of 61 in Rittenberg. And we hit another red light. And this dude gets out of his truck, goes to an SUV that's right next to it and starts like pounding on the window. Mm -hmm. like he must have had some beef with whatever was going on in that suv or whatever and this is all happening about two cars in front of me so i'm watching all of this and then about 15 seconds later like a cop pulls around all the traffic and blocks the intersection and has his lights on and gets out and like stops the scene and mm -hmm. At, like the dude was drunk because as soon as the cop pulled around his buddy in the, in the pickup truck threw a beer out the passenger window. <laughs> and this was like a dude that was wearing like board shorts and no shirt that was like pounding on this SUV or whatever. And so the cop got out and was yelling at the guy to get back to his car. He wouldn't. And then the cop pulled the gun and I was two cars back. I was like, this is not a good place for me to be. Yeah, obviously. But where are you going to go from two cars back? I was blocked in. I had to wait for cars to get around it. But um, in that particular case, I actually thought that the cop handled it really well because he was able to hold the situation down for long enough that backup could arrive because like the end result is this dude needs to get cuffed, but he's got, if the cop spends the time cuffing this guy, then his buddy in the truck could do something, let alone what's happening in the SUV. We don't know if they're innocent or not. We have no idea. But so the cop was able to hold things off long enough for backup to arrive and he kept everything under control and didn't have to fire a shot. But I looked at it, I was like, if this white dude with his shirt off pounding on an SUV makes the wrong move, then the cop's going to have to shoot him. And I don't really want to be in front of that. <laughs> yeah. Fucking crossfire and shit. Right. Uh, did we talk about, did, did I ask you if you ever had a gun pointed at you? Did we talk about that before? Um, no, we haven't. My answer is, no, the closest would have been like when the cop pulled the gun in the, on the dude in that intersection. Yeah, so I've had automatic weapons pointed at me, basically like this far from my chest. And I, 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 I'm, I'll tell you that story 
on the next episode because I don't want to go too much into it. Just, just tell me where it was. I didn't, I didn't speak the language of the person who had pulled the guns on me. DR? Yeah, it was a very, very loud, a lot of shouting. I'll fill you, I'll fill you in maybe on the next episode. Um, but I want to I tell a quick story about the difference in guns in New York and guns in South Carolina. So um, police officers on average only require 672 hours worth of training. A plumber requires more. I'm, I'm curious where we're averaging this number from, but that sounds like a lot. Uh, they're probably right about that. And well, the uh, average number, so, but you're, you're pulling some highs and you're pulling some lows. Yeah, but think about that. If you're doing full-time training 40 hours a week, that's only 15 weeks of full-time training. Okay, yeah, fair. It's full and training. yeah, but think about like how, how, how long do you have to be in cosmetology school? cosmetology oh, school yeah. before and that's you, a, a you're allowed to start cutting hair a plumber requires more training so just to contextualize yeah i'd like i'd like to know where these numbers are coming from um but i want to talk about new york versus South Carolina. so i'd say for right now i believe those numbers yeah fair enough I, i'm not questioning the numbers i'm just i'm trying to contextualize that little little mm-hmm. bit more but yeah so gun laws in uh, new york city versus south carolina so i went to a gun range here in new york city where we had to take an hour-long class which included a, a written class and then i, I don't think it's, I, I think there's a written element to the class and then you go to the gun range and you fire a 22 which is i don't know anything about guns but a 22, 22 is pretty much the smallest caliber that you can so very little different from shooting a gun. there's very little recoil virtually none right. Exactly. It wasn't very loud, uh, and there was no kickback. There was no recoil. Um, It'll still kill you. And the bullets that we were using didn't seem to do very much, but I'm sure you can get other types of bullets that might do more. 22s are still lethal. You shoot somebody in the head with a 22, they're still dead. If something goes through you at the speed of a bullet, it's probably you know it's probably doing some, some pretty serious damage. Um, even a BB, <laughs> but the BB's not going to the, the speed of a bullet. It would take uh, a lot of BBs to kill you, but a 22 one will do the trick. But I'm just saying something shaped like a BB could probably do some real damage too. Um, but our class, and then we supervise, go in a gun range, you shoot the gun. And that's that was what it was like in New York. South Carolina, you and I went to a gun range they asked for my idea, put the idea on the counter, and then you just got a basket and filled it with three guns or so. Mm-hmm. And you walked away, and I was like, what do you need from me? And they're like, oh, no, you're good. I was like, well, put my ID. And they're like, oh, no, you can have it. I don't even if they looked at the ID. They just wanted to make sure I had it. They didn't hold the ID or anything. Yeah. So they held the ID for me because I was renting a gun. The first time I went to the gun range, like I had never shot a gun before, so I went to the gun range. And they said, have you ever shot a gun? I was like, no. And they're like, all right, that's cool. Like, um, we'll have one of, one of the guys that's on the range that stands there just watching to make sure that everybody behaves. He's like, he'll go through the basics with you. And so it was really like five or 10 minutes. He's like, all right, so this is how you load it. This is the slide. This is the release. Like, point it that way. Like, um, but, and so. But, but that was your first time you went alone for this. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure I went by myself. And they're just like, yeah, this is how you do it. And it was five or 10 minutes. And the guy was good. He explained everything I needed to know. And it it is relatively simple. And a lot of the safety regarding guns is extremely basic, which is 
always point the gun towards something that like can't be killed and always assume that a gun's loaded, those basic things. But yeah, the amount of training that they gave me was pretty minimal. It was just, here's how it works. And um, all right, good luck. And then after that, it, like, they're just like, all right, you got your ID? All right, cool. Um, we'll see you when you finish and you can pay up then. Well, they did very little for checking me and we just walked in with a, with a box full of guns, yep, handguns, and we just shot them at the targets. But they knew nothing about me. They had nothing on me. It was just, it was a totally different experience. And, you know, that's why there's crazy gun laws because you have people who. Well, let's let's also safe. talk about, so in New York City, I know the answer to this, but in New York City, can you ride around in a, with a gun in your car? I, I'm pretty sure it's a 99.9999% impossibility of getting. I'm sure there might be some way, but I, I don't know that a, a carry license or concealed carry license is even issued to the general public in New York City. You, you, if you want to get a concealed carry license in New York, you've got to have some reason like being military and a reason or like being law enforcement. But no, you can't just carry a gun around on you in New York City. There's no license for that. And if you want to carry a gun in your car, you basically have to be transporting it from one storage point with the intent of going to like another storage point and like or like really it's just like you can only take it from a locker of some sort to the gun range and so like you can't just ride around with a gun in your car like normal i've got a number of people i know that just regularly like th this is just normal for them have like a, a loaded magazine and a, a gun in their glove box like one of my one of one of the referees that i work with that i'm really close with now the magazine's not loaded into the the pistol but it takes half a second to put the magazine in which if you're um, using it for self-security though you know i i feel like it kind of should be that way well yeah 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 but so he works in property management so um he has to drive around all day long to various properties to check up on things and some of the properties aren't in the best neighborhoods and that's his reason for it i'm not judging it i'm just saying that it's radically different because not only is it legal to carry a gun on you in south carolina he can have it in his glove box i've i've been on like in other people's cars and like like they've got a shotgun just sitting in their trunk or a pistol sitting in their in their glove compartment or whatever so my Whenever I deal with anybody in South Carolina, I assume that they have a gun in their car. I think that would be a fair assumption. Now, I think most people understand the argument. Would the world be a safer place if no one had guns or if everyone had guns? And obviously the answer is it would be safer if no one had guns. But because some- But that's not realistic. But that's not realistic. So now, but what direction do we push for? Right. So now, yeah, then the question some people is, have guns. If you're in New York City, but everybody in New Jersey can get a gun very easily, you know, are you going to feel safe? You know, I've been in situations where, like, I'm, I realize I'm a place I shouldn't be, and like, if I was the property owner there, like, yeah, you know, I, I don't know, I might want to shoot people, play target practice for people on my land. I don't know even the legality of that, but uh, definitely get away not. <laughs> But people can get away with it, you know, it's creating whatever story they want when I'm, you know, when I'm dead and not, you know, able to speak. But yeah, I mean, guns are scary stuff. And, you know, when you, when you, when you give the police, I, let's circle back here, but when you're giving the police deadly weapons, 
they need to be very well trained. Um, and yeah, you, you may not be able to train certain characteristics out of police officers, but I think that you can, you can look for those characteristics with advanced training. Um, you know, and, and, and uh, I was reading about, in this GQ article, I was reading about the training that they were talking about, and it's basically, it, it, it screens for empathy and it screens for uh, like behavioral problems or-, or You like, know what else they screen for? What's that? Intelligence. Well, did you know? Hold on. You, did did you know that if you have basically intelligence above a certain level, you won't get hired? Well, that's where I'm going with this. So what they what they rate on is one to ten, and they look for a steady five. You don't want somebody who's too empathetic, right? You don't want somebody with zero empathy. You don't want somebody that's not scared at all, and you don't want somebody that gets scared all the time. So they basically look for this steady level of, you know, of this kind of average level. And when they, you know, everything might be weighted a bit differently, but for the most part, you're looking for kind of a pretty steady five across the board. And, and yeah, that's, I'm sure that makes sense for intelligence. Like I, you know, I, I see it in real estate agents. Cause if you're too smart, then you're going to question orders. Well, Rightfully so. I, you know, I see real estate agents. Some yeah, but do you want do you want officers questioning orders? Exactly. Exactly. Officers are your your pawns, basically. You know, they just yes. move forward. That's it's just like the military. Very much the same. Mm -hmm. So it's just it, not that I'm that intelligent, but I don't think I'd be able to do that. Listen, people ask me all the time why I never joined the military. I was like, I'd be a terrible fit for the military because. Like I, like, I don't mind doing things that I'm told to do, but they have to make sense. And a lot of the military is predicated on the idea of you just do what you're told and you don't have to worry about whether or not it makes sense because somebody told you to do it. Well, you and were like, never, I can't do that. You were never a very well-behaved kid. Uh, uh, I had my times. But, but that's why, you know, when you, when you question, now I question fucking everything. And I have, I have very little respect for authority because I understand how it works. And I would rather try to create a better system and try to enhance things, especially when I see through, when I see through it and it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, you know, it just, it's, it's really difficult to just always comply. Well, and that's, uh, I've, I've only worked a few corporate jobs in my life, but every single one of them I hated because there would be some rules that came from corporate that didn't make any sense that like, management couldn't change so they just said that's what corporate says to do. you have to do so just do it and well, so whereas like at my current job they basically let me do whatever i want and by that i mean like i can't just like play video games and drink beer when i'm at the office but when it comes to the work that i do they don't really tell me how to do it or anything like that they just care is the work done correctly does the report look good whatever so whenever whenever something comes up if if my boss tells me to do something, I say, Hey, I think it might be better to do it this way. They say, all right, Un unless it's something that like, I'm just wrong on. And they say, no, this is the yeah, way but they'll be open, they'll be, if somebody comes to me and they want to challenge how we do things. I'm open to, I'm open to changing it up. And it's the same thing with my office where if I've got a suggestion or whatever, I can just go to one of the partners and say, Hey, I think this might be a better idea. And then they'll tell me why they'll either look at it or why it hasn't been done, but they'll give me an answer that at least shows that there's consideration. It's never, 
corporate says that we have to do this, or we just, we're doing it this way and you're going to have to get used to it. Yeah. Which is just a really bad policy to have. So look, so I'm going to wrap up a little bit, but I do want to say a pretty interesting topic we're going to touch on soon, either this week or next, depending on what your schedule looks like. Um, sexual harassment, sexual harassment in the workplace. And I really want to, I want to dig in deep to how sexual harassment is perceived, what constitutes sexual harassment, how that's changing. Um, Can I make a suggestion on that point? Yeah. Uh, I think it's a great topic to talk about, but I don't think that we're necessarily the best ambassadors for it. It might be good to bring in a female to, to be able to speak to this topic as well. Well, we, we will have guests uh, on this round and they're already already on board. I had a re recent, not related to my office, but somebody brought some sexual harassment activity uh, into light for me about somebody that was affiliated with us in the past. And um, <laughs> I, I, I don't even know where to go with that, but they just told me someone that used to work here did something not in this realm, not even when they were working here. And basically that, that, that they're going to ruin that person's life um, to basically get even with them. But why? Well, well because I, I dare do their, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. Um, it was, I, I want to elaborate on it a little bit more without giving, giving out too, too many details, but, Fair basically, enough. but basically someone who used to work here is had allegedly harassed someone else, not in the scope of them working here, not while they were working here, well before they worked here. And that now somebody's serving them justice however much time later because, because they're do this justice. And well, that's a good topic to talk about. I don't know the specifics, but you can see how this delay in justice and even the fact that it's being brought up to me, it just kind of, you know, it, it's a complex issue and different people perceive it differently. And I think it's a really good conversation to have. I need to find an article to send you on this topic then. There was an article written in Slate. This is slightly off topic, but about sexual harassment and campus, campus sexual assault. And kind I, of. I the, think you know where this is going. Uh, I'll send you the article. It, it's long, but it's really, really interesting. I'll see if I can find it and send it to you because it's worth a read before we have this conversation on air. All right, cool. Uh, I'd, I'd love to read this article. Anybody have any last minute questions? Who's uh, somebody, somebody they're in. Uh, we got a couple new joiners right now. Um, but, but yeah, definitely. I want you guys to tune in for the sexual harassment conversation we're going to have. Um, send me some feedback. Anybody has any questions real quick before we jump off about the police thing that's going on? I don't want to really continue this conversation too much. We can touch on the future, but kind of dedicating a whole episode to it. I just want to clear the air a little bit. Um, you know, again, like I support, you know, James, like I support the police. I understand it's a really difficult job. I get that. I get that. And, and I think we need police. I just think we need to spend some time addressing what's going on right now. Uh, I think... I think, yeah, that I don't, I think even with, with the exception of the most radical protesters that probably hold opinions that aren't really defensible, 
I think most reasonable people, even people on the Black Lives Matter side that are even farther out on the Black Lives Matter would agree that police are both necessary and valued when they do their job correctly. I think the question is, what should the mission of the police be and how should they go about doing it? Because clearly something that's, clearly whatever's, yeah, something is wrong with the way that we're doing things right now. We're not getting the results that we want. And one of my favorite tautologies that I always circle back to when I look at these things is, every system is perfectly designed to achieve the exact results that it gets. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. And so if you look at right now, we look at the results that we're getting, which are clearly not good. Well, the system's designed perfectly to produce those. So if we want different results, we have to change the system in some way. Yeah, exactly. Simply put, the results that we're getting right now, there's a lot of factors involved. And I think we need to really have a very comprehensive breakdown and look at these different factors and look at what's going on. And so, yeah, this not- isn't to hate on the police or anything. No, they do a valued job and it's necessary in society. And we all want police to serve a role and we all value them. But the question is, are we asking too much of them or are we asking them to do their job in a way that might not necessarily be the most beneficial? And how can we make adjustments that ultimately should be beneficial to both the police and the public? That it's going to make everybody better if we do it right. It is, and it's going to, yeah, it's going to be better for everyone. Um, but I don't think we're going to do it right. No, but if, think, even if we can do it better, like exactly. So let's focus on what, like, let's have a, like, let's really think about what can be done. More training can be done. You're still going to get the same hiring base, I feel like. I don't think that's going to change that much. Probably not. The same pool, you know, your, your candidates. Yeah. But I think you can weed some more people out, and you can draw a lot more awareness during the training and during the everyday duty to, to what's going on and just kind of blind aggression. And- well, you know what you could do to change the base a little bit in terms of the hiring base? Is if you were to be more stringent with requirements, require more training and whatnot, increase pay. Increase pay, you're going to draw better qualified candidates. They're going to have less potential risk factors. And then you could also increase training requirements and stuff. So that way, yeah, you're going to go through a lot of training. It's going to be a pain in the butt, but you'll be paid better for it. Sure, but then you got to hire less people. Not necessarily. Not maybe we, necessarily, maybe we, we just look at how we do our budgets. And maybe instead of spending a ton of money on police equipment that might not be necessary – that maybe we don't want to militarize our police. We want to train them in other ways and put the money away from equipment and crazy stuff and put it towards human capital. Yeah. All right. We, we could go on. We could go on about the police. Oh, sure. My government for a long time. Because, like, all these thoughts are racing through my mind right now, stuff you're talking about. Like, it's just, it's just wild. So, uh, um, um, well, let's just let's just end it there, and we'll tease them um, the next I, couple topics. I, I agree because because my mind's starting to, to spin right now, just thinking about some crazy stuff. Yeah. Um, but in the meantime, don't get shot, don't get pulled over, don't get any speeding tickets, even the camera violations. Yeah, and um, next time, uh, hopefully, I can make Zoom work from uh, the hotel room in Wrightsville Beach, and I'll have a background of waves rolling in that's not. Well, you get some fans here, especially on TikTok. So, oh, oh, I don't want to dis- disappoint them. Uh, we just got to find a way to get this full video online. Um, 
All right. I will, uh, I'll catch you later. I'll talk to you later. And uh, as always, much appreciated. Laters. See ya. All right. 16 minutes later, you are still here. You rock. Consider leaving a comment below. Um, And if you're listening to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, consider reviewing and throw me some stars. I'd really appreciate it. It will help us out big time. Thanks.